Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Luke Kemp, Research Associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge, who's also an honorary lecturer in environmental policy at the Australian National University. And in this episode, we spoke to him because he published a paper recently in PNAS, Climate Endgame, Exploring Catastrophic Climate Change Scenarios. We get into this topic, discussing what is catastrophic climate change, how might it appear, and what are the likelihood of these worst case scenarios. Pete and I went into this episode moderately skeptical of Kemp's conclusions regarding both the scenarios for extreme catastrophic impacts of climate change, as well as his conclusion that scientific research has under-examined these scenarios. And I think we'll leave it to the listeners to judge whether uh, Luke makes a good case for his research. One aspect of our conversation that I want to highlight is toward the end, we move into the topic that we sometimes do here of solar geoengineering, or SRM, for solar radiation modification, the proposal to artificially cool the planet to counter climate change. I always find it interesting to discuss the proposals for at least considering SRM with those who are most concerned about the fat-tailed risks of climate change, the low probability but nevertheless extremely high impact scenarios of climate change. One could imagine, on the one hand, that such concern increases interest in researching SRM, but that's not always the case because researchers such as Kemp, who are worried about existential risks, also see a chance of existential risk in the use of solar geoengineering. Yeah, we talk a bit about the direct risks, you know, climate itself leading to the catastrophic collapse of civilization. And I, and I think Kemp himself is quite skeptical of that possibility, though points out that there is the possibility of very large warmings, even on moderate emission scenarios. We can't rule out very high climate sensitivities. But we spend quite a lot of our time talking about the more indirect risks, the ways in which climate change would be sort of a risk multiplier. And then the question is, you know, how fragile is our world? Is it much more fragile than we think? I mean, you can think of the Soviet Union. Everyone thought that was going to last indefinitely, and then it toppled. Could our world be the same? Is one way that climate change could, could lead to catastrophic outcomes. That There's a whole set of things that people are worried about that could be catastrophic, you know, pandemics, nuclear wars, etc. Could climate change modulate the risk of those? And so we get into some of this and... Um, I still left with the idea that climate change is not as catastrophic a risk as many think it is, but I think it's an interesting discussion to get into. And um, yeah, hopefully you all enjoy it. And now our conversation with Luke Kemp. Luke Kemp, welcome to Challenging Climate. Jesse, thank you for having me. I'd like to begin with helping the listeners get a sense of who you are. So could you tell us briefly how you ended up uh, studying catastrophic risk? What was your, uh, whether it's high school or, or university years that, that landed you in this spot? 
Sadly, I didn't start with a focus on catastrophe when I was a child. This was something that came later. I became interested in climate change and issues of environmental risk when I was in high school and going into university. In university, I did what was called a Bachelor of Interdisciplinary Studies, where you had to take two units from every faculty. And my focus was on both what's called human geography as well as international relations. And as part of that, I would end up going on a student delegation to the Copenhagen Climate Conference. And that started a fairly long-lasting affair with climate negotiations. So throughout both my PhD and my honours research, I attended the climate negotiations. And my PhD was mainly focused on quite a different topic, which was how to address US participation in international environmental governance. To me, while it was different, it was still always driven by this concern around how do you address global environmental risk? And in this case, it seemed like getting the US on board was one of the key crucial pins in ensuring you can address these problems. The turning point to directly focus on extreme risk came when I was a lecturer directly after my PhD. I was lecturing a course called Climate Change Science and Policy. And as part of that, because the students become so depressed, we always finish up with two hopeful lectures. One on social mobilization, protest movements, and another on techno fixes. And as part of looking into geoengineering and the kind of techno fixes to climate change, I came across an article by Seth Baum about double catastrophes. And while I had found issues with that particular paper, it nonetheless was a bit of a gateway drug to looking more broadly into the literature on catastrophic risk. And it led me fairly quickly to the conclusion that one needs to think beyond climate change. Because if we are somehow successful in decarbonizing the entire world by 2050, we achieve that monumental and Herculean task, and yet we have a nuclear war in 2051, we are unfortunately still screwed. And so I started conceptualizing it as a Pokemon problem. You have to catch them all. You have to address all the sources of catastrophic risk. And that eventually led me to pivoting my studies towards that and eventually joining the University of Cambridge, where I've been here for the last four and a half years working on a range of different issues, including biosecurity, extreme climate change, and the general notion of societal collapse. What is a catastrophic risk? How precise can that term be? I often hear the term, you know, fat tail risks and existential risks and so forth. At the very least, how do you use the term catastrophic risk? But the confusion is warranted because for each of these terms, whether it's catastrophic risk or existential risk, there are a plethora of definitions, and many of them are very ambiguous. The way I like to think of it is there's a spectrum of catastrophe. And catastrophe, in a sense, means simply the idea of events that are going to lead to large-scale damage, harm, and loss of life. On the one end, at least this is the way we frame it in a recent paper, Climate Endgame, you have what we would call a global decimation risk. So people use the term decimation to mean like great damage, but it actually has a much more precise meaning than the Latin term. And decimation was originally used as a form of punishment against the Roman legion. If soldiers fled in battle, for instance, they'd be punished afterwards by basically taking one-tenth of the legion and randomly executing them. And the execution was particularly brutal. You'd force some of the soldiers to essentially beat to death for those who were selected by the lot. But either way, it has a very precise meaning of essentially 10%, the loss of one-tenth. And so we use that as a very rough heuristic of an event or a process that in the space of decades could lead to a loss of 10% of global population, which is something that appears to have happened only a very few number of times throughout human history. Of course, the numbers are very fuzzy historically, but it seems like both the Black Death or the repeated bouts of the Black Death 
and the invasion and colonization of South America. You can then, at least for us, go up to what we'd call global carcinogenic risk, which is events and processes that lead to 25% loss of the population, as well as a disruption of critical systems globally. And then you can eventually go all the way to extinction risk, the extinction of the human species in the long term. There's the term existential risk, which has been usually defined in a very fuzzy way as the loss of our potential. Yes, I know. I'm also very confused about it most of the time. There's a funny story behind this. So originally, the term existential risk was defined by a philosopher by the name of Nick Bostrom. And Bostrom was a transhumanist who has a very strong belief that the end state of humanity should be to colonize the entire cosmos and to essentially create as many super intelligent, happy beings as possible. It's all about maximizing utility. And in the kind of canonical paper defining existential risk, he puts it as existential risk is anything that prevents us from achieving technological maturity. And technological maturity is this vision of having maximal control over nature and maximal economic productivity. So anything that prevents us from reaching this very particular techno-utopia is an existential risk. Now, myself and others in the field have put forward this paper called Democratizing Risk, where we essentially say that's problematic for a huge number of reasons, including not everyone shares that vision of the future, and it would lump together a near-term nuclear war with, for instance, us staying on the planet for the next billion years and then going extinct, which to most people are two dramatically different scenarios, but both would be classified as an extent risk. For now, I tend to actually avoid the use of the term extent risk. I think it's too fuzzy. I don't think it's useful to start talking about our potential, given that everyone has very different thoughts about what that exactly means. And if we're going to use the term existential risk, I think we're best off using it as the risk to the existence of a particular object. You could then start saying things like the risk of the loss of our global industrialized society, for instance, or our species. But our potential, I think, an unhelpful term. All right. Well, um, we're going to zoom in on a paper or a comment that you recently had in PNAS in August titled Climate Endgame, Exploring Catastrophic Climate Change Scenarios. How might catastrophic climate change, in the sense you've just been describing, arise? Yeah, so in the perspectives piece, we try to both talk about the reasons to think these potentially catastrophic scenarios are plausible. But importantly, we also talk about why it's necessary to consider these and why they appear to be neglected thus far. But to focus on why they're plausible, we advance four different reasons. The first is essentially precedence that climate change has been involved or implicated in all five of the mass extinction events throughout the Phoenixoic history of Earth. In the worst of these, the Great Permian Dime, we appear to have had warming of roughly six to eight degrees, and that occurred over the space of thousands of years. While I think we're going to be pretty hard-pressed to get six to eight degrees, it's not implausible, but it's fairly unlikely, we would be doing it at an order of magnitude quicker than that worst mass extinction event. One could, of course, say that this is different. Humans are much more adaptable than most of the species have died in mass extinction events. But then this is where another point of precedent comes in, which is that we, as a global society, appear to be fairly adapted to a particular climatic niche. And this is based upon the work of a number of the co-authors led by Zhu Qi at Nanjing University, which is called the Future of the Human Climate Niche. And essentially, they tried to look at how population density and urbanism have corresponded to climate over the past 10,000 years, ever since the advent of the Holocene. 
And it seems like the vast majority of human population and urban societies have tended to be in a kind of narrow climatic bandwidth of roughly 13 degrees mean on annual temperature. And of course, it's fairly notable that we had this switch towards large-scale urban societies with states roughly with the advent of the Holocene, this kind of stable climatic period. So that's just simply one very broad idea, is that both mass extinction events and the way that human societies have been adapted to and responsive to a very particular climatic condition gives us reason to think that a quick and dramatic disruption to that climatic condition could lead to catastrophe. So is that in the sense that because human society hasn't been proved to be resistant to such changes, we should at least worry that it might collapse? I'd go beyond that and say that we have numerous instances where small climatic perturbations at a regional level appear to have caused pretty large shocks in societies. This is still fairly contested in both archaeology and history, but there's a number of case studies, whether it's the Bronze Age collapse in roughly 1177 BCE, or the crisis of the 17th century, as Jeffrey Park would call it, where climate change, and particularly drought, seems to have driven the loss and the failure of a large number of states, as well as things like large-scale warfare, disruption of critical systems, etc. In the case of the Bronze Age collapse, essentially the loss of an entire kind of world system across the Mediterranean. So I think it's not just simply the fact that we know that we are adapted to a climate niche and we don't know what happens outside of that. I think it's also that we have very good evidence that when climate conditions change rapidly, neither the biosphere nor humans seem to handle it that well. And that is a cause for concern. Yeah, we had um, we had Digamar de Groot on a few episodes back, who does a very careful study of the history of climate and society. And I think he pointed out or suggested um, in this article he wrote that there has been a little bit of bias in the field there, that people start from the catastrophes and then work back to try and find a reason why it was. And, and often climate seems seems fairly convenient. And he was sort of saying that, you know, the whole field needs to really adopt a much more systematic approach where you, you know, you start from the, you know, the whole span of history that you want to address because there's a selection bias in some of this stuff. So yeah, it's tricky reconstructing the past and perhaps trickier still predicting the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in my personal view is that in general, humans are actually fairly resilient towards different changes, including climate and ecology. So I actually have a paper, well, it's a short chapter with a number of historians, including John Houghton, where we basically highlight that there's a large number of like very adverse and volatile climates that people do live in and have for a long period of time, like the Bedouin people, for instance. And what seems to be the biggest issue, I think personally, is more kind of societal fragility. So how we are culturally and ethnically arranging ourselves and how adapt that makes us to changes in the climate. That being said, there's obviously still certain limits to how far we can adapt. In general, I think one of the problems with looking at historical case studies is that we're obviously quite different now, both in terms of the pervasiveness and the speed of warming and the magnitude, but also the difference between kind of industrial versus agrarian societies. Um, there's some kind of open questions as to how comparable the two are. I think they can be quite comparable, at least politically, but obviously less so in terms of subsistence based. So your paper, you list a large number of factors that could potentially contribute to catastrophic climate risks. And many of them, there's quite a lot of uncertainty. A classic example is climate sensitivity. We think it's probably around three Celsius, but there's about a 5% chance that it's five Celsius or more. So there's a chance that we could have some pretty bad news on that front. You mentioned a lot of these things and sort of, I think, focusing on the, on the upper end of them. How do you go about constructing worst case scenarios to investigate? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So we give four different research strands of how you could start to put together the kind of necessary research body to think about the worst case scenarios. And we talk about both looking at extreme Earth system states. So thinking about where does the Earth system end up in the very long term, not just 2100 when many models cut off. Additionally, trying to look at particularly at what are the mechanisms and mass mortality and morbidity and trying to quantify and model societal fragility. So the risk of risk cascades. As we know of things like COVID-19, it's often less about the individual and initial threat and much more about the knock-on effects it can potentially cause. And in terms of how you create the worst case scenarios, I think you basically have to look at a number of different factors and kind of turn up the dial each thing. So one, of course, would be aerophagenic emissions. Another one would be the response of the Earth system. The third would be the impact. The fourth would be societal fragility. And the fifth would be the responses of both domestic and international communities. It's worthwhile noting that while in the kind of worst, worst case, you'd want to have all those dialed up, I think you can potentially have catastrophic outcomes if just two or three of these are bad enough. So potentially of two or three degrees, if our responses and our societies are much more fragile than we expect, then you could potentially end up with catastrophe. And likewise, if we have a future where we actually have really beneficial, well-governed, adaptive technology, and our societies are marked by equality and a strong cooperative ethos internationally, then we might actually be able to handle more warming than we're expecting. So in short, it's very tricky. And I think you have to feed in both a number of social, political, and other considerations, such as equality, the level of cooperation, even things like disease burden, one of the technologies and dangers we expect to be around. And you need to then run those against different climatic scenarios. But in short, if you're looking at the very worst ones, then yeah, you'd probably be looking at ones where you're upping both the level of anthropogenic emissions, the likelihood of different points, and strong Earth system responses, and hence high levels of long-term warming. Yeah, I, I guess one of the worries, you have the one in 10 worst case for all your factors. There's not a 10% chance of that happening. There's a you know one in 10 to the power, whatever. So maybe if you have six factors, if you turn everything up to 10, you've got a one in a million probability of that. How do you think about the likelihood of these worst case scenarios? Does the likelihood matter if you're thinking about a worst case? Uh, likelihood, of course, always matters. I mean, at this stage, we don't try to delve into probability. We're delving into plausibility. Is this consistent with our kind of background understanding of knowledge and are there good, consistent scientific reasons to think this could occur? And in the end, climate catastrophe does seem plausible. The probability, I think, we can't really determine until we have better studies. But I would remark that for a lot of these things, either the probabilities that we know of aren't that low, or at the very least, the probabilistic range covers from the very low to potentially the very high. So when we look at things like climate sensitivity and what warming we're expecting in the future, obviously, given existing policies, the range is somewhere between like 2.1 to 3.9, like a median of like 2.9, which doesn't sound that bad. But of course, it depends upon what kind of warming you get in the much longer term beyond 2100 as well. And three degrees is still something which is well beyond what was usually considered to be the kind of acceptable level of temperature rise. And when you look at the likelihood of us getting, say, five degrees or above, and you've already kind of mentioned this, you know, getting above 4.5 degrees, I think we determined was roughly, and this is with equilibrium climate sensitivity, so the long-term impacts once you double CO2 levels. And that's something like, I think it was 13% or something like that. You get above 4.5, you know, that's, that's not a small probability by any means. And likewise, I think with many of these notions of societal fragility of there being big risk cascades, we haven't got the adequate research to actually put probabilities in these yet. 
But personally, I'd be very surprised if these were all in the kind of 0.001% range. I think that'd be probably a probabilistic range that goes towards the 10% and above. I want to back up a step. You mentioned 3.9 degrees warming is the high end. Could you repeat or clarify what the characterization of that is? I'd have to quickly check. The 3.9 is coming from a study from Lewin Rafferty in 2019, where they looked at the kind of the general range that we would expect to get given current policies. And there was something between like 2.1 and 3 point something. I want to look at the study again before yeah, really quoting that directly. But that was basically just that. And then the median is usually somewhere between 2.7 to 3.9. So Climate Action Tracker has it as 2.7. The Lewin Rafferty study, I think, has it as like 2.1. And we define extreme climate change in the paper as three degrees and above because this is a temperature which anatomically modern humans have never actually experienced. It's well above the existing kind of guardrails of international agreements. And additionally, it's a point where you essentially have all the major causes of concern that the IPCC has identified as being high or very high. It's also worth noting that we wrote this before a recent paper had been published, which essentially reviews and synthesizes the literature on tipping points, which paints an even more grim picture insofar as it appears to be at least five or six tipping points that could be knocked off in the Earth system at roughly 1.5 degrees Celsius. But in short, I'd be very surprised if getting catastrophic impacts on each of these different layers, whether it's kind of epigenic emission, et cetera, a super low probability. And I note that in almost all of these, we don't even know the probabilistic range very well. So while we often are forecasting what level of temperature rise we expect to get by the end of the century based upon energy models, and in a lot of my work is in foresight, and for predicting geopolitical events, but the best method by far that we have is super forecasters. And they're not accurate more than a year out. When it comes to actually predicting geopolitical events, we can't get it right more than a year out, even for the very best methods using multiple experts, which are mediated by a machine learning algorithm. So we need to have a certain degree of humility about what the geopolitical or the energy system is going to look like by 2100. And because of that, I think we're going to end up having pretty big ranges in terms of our uncertainty and the probability of both the worst case and the best case scenarios. So focusing back into, onto the climate side of things, because your paper does claim that catastrophic climate rises, these greater than 3C climate rises, are understudied. And I guess I was a little surprised by that conclusion. So could you like explain how you arrived at that analysis or that conclusion? A quick point of clarification. So we make the claim that catastrophic climate risk is understudied. Part of that is temperature rise, but not all of it. So I think the far less controversial claim is to say that our existing risk assessments are simplistic and don't capture the extreme risks. There's been papers published in Nature showcasing that even when it comes to compound hazards, so the interaction between, say, for example, a hurricane and a heat wave, those things usually aren't incorporated into the models, let alone actually incorporated into full risk assessments. That's saying a lot about how simplistic our risk assessments are, and we definitely don't incorporate things like risk cascades which, you know, when you think about the way that risk unfolds in the real world is certainly a shortcoming. This would be like trying to look at the impacts of COVID-19 and not thinking about lockdowns or healthcare system collapse. So that's one aspect, is it simply risk assessment. The second is temperature rise in particular. And the claim here is based upon two different text mining exercises I was involved with, where we basically did text mining RPCC reports to look at the mention of different levels of temperature. We then also looked at were these false positives or were they accurate dimensions. 
And we also then verify this by doing a short amount of literature sampling in Google Scholar and additionally by looking at what has been the conclusion of others who've tried to look at risk literature for climate change. And so the most obvious ones here are popular science writers like David Wells-Wells and Mark Linus. And it's pretty clear cut. Once you get to five and six degrees, there's way less to go off than if you're looking at two degrees or 1.5 degrees. Anyway, in short, the, the key conclusion we had was that relative to the probability, at least under kind of fairly plausible levels of warming, say 550 parts per million, both three degrees and above are understudied and they're vastly understudied compared to 1.5 and 2 degrees. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because interestingly, most people I've spoken to, say for instance, like Richard Betts, who's kind of one of the best scientists right now on extreme impacts, they're usually like, yeah, spot on. We are definitely understudying this. And even when you look at literature like Helix EU and those projects, a few of the ones which actually seem to be innately focused on four degrees temperature rise and above. There's also, I mean, a whole bunch of journal special editions that were done, done back at least in early 2010, basically saying, yeah, a picture of four degrees and above is very, very limited. Yeah, there was a comment, I think, in response to your work that analyzed the, the frequency with which the most extreme emission scenario, the RCP 8.5, the FSP 585, there's like huge, you know, coal consumption quadruples by the end of the century. This is the most mentioned scenario throughout the IPCC report and the most used in most of the literature. So I guess the thought there is there's a whole lot of scenarios, a whole lot of analysis that has very large temperature changes. But I wonder if they're actually specifically saying four Celsius. Whereas in the case of one and a half and two, because they've been explicitly pulled out as the targets for policy, and so policymakers want to hear about one and a half and two, those numbers get specifically mentioned a lot. But the actual amount of research, the amount of scenarios that include really large warming, really large changes is pretty huge by my understanding. So I, I wonder if that's partly the, re the reason you found that result is that people aren't specifically saying four Celsius because that's not their focus. So you are referring here to the Burgess and Hill response to our, to our paper, which we've written a reply letter to as well. So there's a couple of problems here. One is the RCPs contain a very large temperature range. And so RCP 8.5 is not just kind of five degrees and above, it also goes all the way down to three point something, I remember. And there's actually overlaps. So you know, RCP 8.5 overlaps with RCP 3-7. And for those, you're only looking at basically one particular thing, which is the CMIP6 model suite. And of course, there's a large range of literature beyond that as well. There could, of course, be an issue here with both methodologies insofar as they're only looking at mentions of these particular scenarios and not the wide literature. They're obviously also doing not as a granular analysis of what we're doing. But as you mentioned, we are also looking at temperature rise and not necessarily scenarios. I mean, it's weakness from both. I think the biggest thing here by far for me is that the other lines of evidence all point towards the underrepresentation being the more accurate claim here. So as mentioned, the fact that this has been the conclusion that's been reached by other people who entered the field and tried to synthesize the literature, that it's backed up by literature sampling, and that it also echoes what has been said in the literature previously. That all gives me a lot more confidence that these are understudied than rather overstudied as Burgess et al. claim. Yeah, no, I, I think most of the client modeling studies I've seen do use these high-end scenarios. So I think the scenarios themselves are commonly used. Whether they're summarized and synthesized is perhaps another, another matter. Yeah, so your paper um, recommends for you know, a large increase in research on this topic, and you suggest there should be an IPCC special report to try and bring together these strands of evidence. The question is, how would a better understanding of the catastrophic risk potential of climate change 
actually change what policymakers do? Like, what would they do with that knowledge that they they aren't already doing? So two briefings want to cover and kind of push back a little bit. One is I do think this focus on, on temperature rise is both a mistake and unnecessary. So I think this is a mistake insofar as almost all the risk analysis seems to do this as well. Even from authors I quite respect, like Mark, Mark Linus, where there's the general idea of two degrees bad, three degrees worse, four degrees collapse, six degrees extinction, etc. I don't necessarily agree or endorse that particular characterization. But in general, I think it's kind of fairly limited to just get focused on the risk being indicated by the level of warming. That just isn't the case. It depends upon how the society looks and how we respond to it. And those are also unknown factors, as is the level of warming. And even if we were, and again, I think this is incorrect, but even if we were like really well studying high level temperature rise, the fact that we are studying risk cascades and we don't have complex risk assessments, I think still means we're vastly underestimating understudying extreme risk. Um, but I do think that's something we need to get over is this conflation of extreme climate risk with a given temperature rise. And this is something we point out in the response to Burgess et al. is that you really need to consider these multiple factors, including both system response, including human responses, et cetera. I should also briefly mention, because I totally got sidetracked and didn't mention it before, but the plausible reasons, apart from precedence, we also talk about systemic risk, the knock-on effects that could be incurred. The fact that it could trigger other large-scale catastrophic threats, things like potential nuclear war, and latent risk. It impedes our ability to recover from another large-scale catastrophe or disaster. In terms of what does this mean for policy? Well, I think that really depends on the results. But one could imagine, for instance, if you do this kind of analysis and you realize that the biggest potential risk factor here or risk cascade factor is actually disease, then you probably start to prioritize efforts to actually mitigate, say, zoonotic infections, something like that. If you realize instead that the biggest factor is actually risk cascades from conflict, then you probably try to focus on conflict mediation in certain areas. There's also a question of does this in general just change what we do in terms of policy analysis, which I think is just an unequivocal yes. So if you're looking at the social cost of carbon, then including high-level temperature scenarios massively changes the calculated cost of social carbon. One paper by John Quiggin, where you end up with orders of magnitude higher social costs of carbon if you just do a kind of naive incorporation of high levels of warming. And likewise, there was a recent paper published by scholars looking at tipping points and their incorporation into an integrated assessment model. And that also raised your social cost of carbon by eightfold. So, whether you're looking at policy or particular interventions, I think having a form of risk analysis both changes the results and also potentially changes your intervention points as well. Your climate endgame paper received a moderate amount of media coverage. Your university, uh, the University of Cambridge, put out a press release, and this came across my radar from more than one source. How do you feel about the media coverage you received? Do you think that it accurately captured the message that the paper was trying to convey? Did it exaggerate or did it underplay your message? Surprisingly, I was actually both surprised and impressed by the media coverage and as far as I was expecting far worse. Uh, obviously, media is known to be sensationalist when it comes to topics like this. By and large, I thought most outlets were fairly faithful in terms of describing this more as there's plausible reasons for concern and these areas are underexplored, rather than saying this paper is directly stating that we're all going to die, which it does not that being said, there were definitely some headlines which made no sense and were definitely over-the-top sensationalist. So there's one fantastic one, which I think it may have been from the Mirror, 
which the title was something along the lines of extinction-level pandemic set to hit the UK by 2070. I have no idea how they go from our paper to that, but somehow they made that connection. That's uh, that's impressive. But, But no, by and large, given my low expectations, the media coverage exceeded them. But as with anything dealing with these kind of topics, there were definitely some sensational mistakes. Yeah, I noticed that some of the headlines picked up on the extinction risk, which is something you mentioned upon there. Is that something that you believe that when there was exaggeration, that that was something that was played up? Yeah, I and mean, this is a problem where we are talking about, as mentioned at the start of the conversation, a spectrum, you know, all the way from global destination risk through to extinct risk. And so it's natural that extinction risk is the one that's emphasized. That being said, you know, I do think that the idea that in the very long term, I can't see this happening anywhere near 2100, but in the very long term, given the way climate change has played a role in mass extinctions and events in the past, I don't see it as being strange or misbegotten to be relating human extinction to climate change. But you personally, would you rule out or not the possibility that anthropogenic climate change could lead to human extinction? Is there a chance of that? I would qualify this. So one thing I should have mentioned right at the start of the conversation is we provide fairly strict definitions about how we talk about risk and about threats. And when I'm talking about extinction risk or global catastrophic risk, it's really a given probability of this occurring in a given time frame. And so it's less about saying, is climate change going to lead to this? And more, what's the contribution of climate change to a given probability of extinction risk in a given time frame? And going forward, say over the next couple of thousand years, is climate change going to be one of the main contributors to the probability of human extinction? I'd say yes. Something that you propose in your paper that an aspect of a research agenda that a better understanding of the potential for catastrophic risks from climate change could inform is better understanding and thinking about uh, solar geoengineering, which is something that Pete and I have studied a bit. The prospect of artificially cooling the earth by means that include but are not limited to the injection of particles into the stratosphere But at the same time, you've also written a paper that says, well, you know, solar geo, sometimes called SRM, if we slip into that abbreviation, be aware that we're meaning the same thing, that SRM itself could pose some catastrophic risks. How can we understand that implicit balance? And to be clear, it's it's a balance that your SRM paper explicitly rejects, Not, not rejecting as a concept or as a tool, but it's something that we say, we don't do this. We don't make the trade-off here. We're only looking at the potential catastrophic risks of SRM. But that's all well and good. Policymakers must make decisions. What are the factors here? This is an extreme risk-risk trade-off implicitly. What do we do? How can we go forward? Yeah, so in this paper, uh, Fate, Worse Than Warming, that's a question, not a statement, which was done by Aaron Tang. So Aaron Tang at the Australian National University was the lead author. We try to look at the different potential catastrophic impacts that SAI, so the stratospheric aerosol injection in particular, rather than SRM in general, could pose. And we look at this across a number of different areas, which we've kind of already mentioned in relation to climate change as well. The direct impacts, the potential knock-on effects and systemic risk, the ability to trigger other very large-scale hazards, and latent risk. And I mean, for all this, the literature just isn't really well developed enough to make any clear statements. And for some, when it comes to, say, direct risks, it's really just a matter of everything points towards probably not. It seems impossible to rule out, but there's really no reason to believe it would have any catastrophic direct impacts. 
The conclusion we come to is that if one takes termination shock in particular seriously, so this is the idea that a sudden disruption to the system, which is also prolonged, results in an accelerated level of warming. Since you haven't changed the actual composition of the atmosphere, you haven't changed the level of greenhouse gases, you're just simply mastered in the short term. That what you're essentially doing here is shifting the risk distribution. And the kind of median or best case outcomes under the use of SAI are almost certainly going to be better than having your climate change. But if the worst case scenario happens, it could be worse than the warming you're offsetting. What does one do with that? I mean, in a way, it depends upon risk appetite and how seriously you take tail risk. So one thing we do mention in Climate Endgame is the use of what's called the Minimax principle, which is essentially where... If you are operating in a context of deep uncertainty, you have multiple policy options and you rank them by their worst case outcome and you basically choose the one that has the kind of least probability or the best worst case. There's other ways of doing this where you basically try to take both ranking the worst case and the best case for different policy options and you weight each one and come to a conclusion. That's a fairly technocratic approach. I personally am a very big fan of deliberative democracy. So using things like citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries, these have a very strong body of literature, both experimentally, practically, and theoretically, which suggests this is one of the best ways in the long term to have good collective judgment, particularly when it comes to issues that require a certain degree of moral and value pluralism. And I think it's impossible to get around the fact that both risk in these big decisions are ultimately decisions of values, you know. Even the IPCC definition of risk is not just about harm to a given system, but it's about that being based upon certain values as well. So in short, I don't think you can make these risk-risk assessments or trade-offs without having groups of diverse citizens with different values and somehow finding a method of incorporating those in. And it seems like deliberative democracy is the best way of doing that. So what would that mean? It would mean having these kind of assessments where you know the risks of the risk distribution, the very worst case risk, the average risk, et cetera, and feeding this into groups of citizens who can then make a decision on what we should do. I guess a probability is on my mind here and how probability and human agency play out in fundamentally different ways when we think about potential catastrophic risks of anthropogenic climate change caused by greenhouse gases and potential catastrophic risks of SRM. Probability is, of course, key to risk. Think about you know risk as being probability times potential impact as a, as a first estimation. The range of possible outcomes of anthropogenic climate change as shaped by human agency, especially individual decision makers, is not that wide in the sense that, look, climate change is happening. Yeah, if we collectively act to mitigate, we can have this emission scenario. And if we don't, we have that emission scenario. But a lot of the uncertainty is around physical phenomena like climate sensitivity and how extreme weather events will react, et cetera, et cetera. And these human decisions are enormously collective. In contrast, SRM would, at optimistic extreme, greatly reduce climate change risks but on the other hand, a small number of decision makers could cause SRM to go in a path that's highly risky and potentially catastrophic. And the probability of such individual decision makers making such decisions are basically impossible to estimate. So in a way, there's a bit of an asymmetry between the two phenomena. What's your take on that difference? Yes and no. So I think actually when it comes to climate change, there is a great deal of uncertainty in how we are going to respond. 
And I think to me, this is actually one of the reasons why we need to have more complex risk assessments. So you know, things like risk cascades are ultimately about uncertainty in terms of how human society respond. And I think this is also something that I've taken from looking at this kind of historical case studies of transformation, collapse, and resiliences. You can have societies face very similar ecological and climatic threats and respond in vastly different ways. So I think there actually is a fairly large degree of uncertainty, although I would agree with you that there's potentially a larger range when it comes to geoengineering, when it comes to SAI in particular. How does one deal with that? I think we can always make some rough estimates. I remember my mentor here at Cambridge University, Bill Sutherland, once saying how he was talking to an expert, and I think it was on an ufologist, and they were talking about something to do with birds, and Bill said, okay, so what's your probability of this happening? And the guy said, I couldn't possibly put a number in that. And Bill said, okay, 5%. And he's like, no, no, that's way too. And so automatically, you start to have a probabilistic distribution, right? I think this can be misleading so far as if we take a number from a single expert, that's giving us way too much precision. But if you get a large group of experts and you get them put down a probabilistic distribution and you have that kind of updated over time, which is what we've done with, for example, equilibrium client sensitivity, the best estimates right now are using a kind of Bayesian approach using large groups of experts. That's going to give a much more accurate depiction of how probability is likely to lay in the future. And for me, that's probably the best way of doing it. And what do you do with it? Once again, I think, you know, feed it into something like a deliberate assembly or a citizen's jury to make a decision based on how we actually work based upon probability, I think is something that shouldn't be made by technocrats. And I don't think there's any ideal solution to it. I think it depends upon values and risk adversity and risk appetite. So as always, we're going to end on a note of optimism, which I think today will be particularly appropriate. So given what you work on, are you optimistic about the future? And if not, or if so, what specifically or what things do give you optimism about the future? What gives you hope? I mean, the cliche answer is always, I'm neither optimistic or pessimistic, I'm realistic. I'm optimistic in some regards and pessimistic in other regards. I do tend to think that we're actually going to do better than expected in terms of emissions reductions, most likely. You know, this is covered pretty well, but when you look at existing trajectories compared to even 10 years ago, we seem to be at the very least drastically improved. Um, you know, it seems like the likelihood of getting four or five degrees is substantially lowered. That being said, I think I've become more pessimistic about the Earth system responses, particularly the notion of tipping cascades. I'm not sure if those two wash out or not. If we're looking beyond climate change, I'm probably more pessimistic overall. I think that there's some very robust long-term trends, which I don't think are going to reverse anytime soon. One of them is inequality, that in the absence of a great leveler, you tend to see increases in wealth inequality. This is based upon some work of a colleague of mine, Walter Scheidel, who's done kind of the largest empirical study of wealth inequality across history. And additionally, that while we've had large-scale improvements in a whole bunch of different forms of human well-being, we've also seen pretty robust increases in the capacity and ability for states to control and understand their citizens, which I think in the very long term is probably a dangerous kind of trend. So in short, I don't, I don't really know. There's a whole bunch of trends which are positive. There's a whole bunch of ones which are negative. And depending upon your values, future could be good or bad. I, I think I'm probably more pessimistic overall about how the future is heading. That's also because I'm someone who, you know, highly values things like democracy, for instance, and maybe undervalues other certain things. In terms of what actually keeps me going, there's an old joke in the field that the field selects for people who have a high baseline of happiness, which could be true. I'm already a pretty happy-go-lucky person by nature. 
Additionally, I do think in a way it's easier to study these big catastrophic risks than to study much more grounded local ones. It's just because they're so much more abstract and hard to emotionally connect to. When I was reading literature for a book I'm doing on societal collapse and I was reading literature around democide and genocide, I found that way more harrowing and far more touching than thinking about, you know, five or six degrees of warming. Even though five or six degrees may result in a far larger fatality count on larger amounts of suffering, it's just so displaced from the current world. While looking at things which you can actually put a human face on, that's far more touching and far more emotionally disturbing. So in a way, it's, it's not as bad as one would expect. All right. Well, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you, Peter and Jason. Well, thanks for listening. Please rate or review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere and consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash challengingclimate.